I'm Mark Groves, and this is the Holistic I'm Valerie Jacobson, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. And this is the Holistic I'm Barbara Stewart, and this is the I'm Marin Green, and this is the Holistic OBGYN and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. And this is the holistic I'm Ben Joseph Stewart, and this podcast. is the holistic OBGYN I'm Ross podcast. Newkirk, and this is the holistic OBGYN podcast. I'm Sarah Gustafson, podcast. and this is the holistic OBGYN I'm podcast. I'm Dr. Aaron Ujwin McMara, and this is the holistic OBGYN podcast. I'm Alex Kuczynski, and this is the holistic OBGYN podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 31 of the Holistic Obituary Podcast. I am joined by my dear friend, Stu Fishbein, MD, Associate of ACOG. He's been practicing out in California, the West Coast, and drives far and wide to help women have birth at home, even if the medical establishment has deemed them high risk. So that includes women with prior C-section, sometimes multiple C-sections, um, twin deliveries, etc. The list goes on and on. He's um, I won't use the word maverick, but he is not afraid to attend births that would give other OBGYNs a little trepidation. And for that, he's become quite well-known in the space, and I am quite flattered to have him here. I met him uh, early on. He's many years ahead of me in practice. Um, and we tell our origin story in the podcast, so I won't spoil it for you. But as soon as I met him, I was like, wow, this is a guy doing things differently. And... First and foremost, what Stu Fishbein models better than most is informed decision-making and how to counsel, respectfully counsel a woman using non-coercive language through the, the lens of evidence-based medicine so that they can make an informed decision. And then he supports them in their decisions. And, and, and that's the type of training that many of us are not getting. But I was fortunate enough to meet him early on in my residency training and uh, learned quite a deal, quite a, quite a bit from him and continue to learn from him because he also has a podcast called Birthing Instincts, which he hosts with my other friend, Bliss Young, and his close collaborator. She's a CPM out in California. We tried, Bliss and I tried to do an interview for this show, but she was having some internet connectivity issues and um, we're going to try to re-record that sometime in the near future. So, uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Stu Fishbein. One last thing before we, we kick it off. Remember, everything said in this podcast is not to be construed as medical advice. It is educational and informative. Take it or leave it. Um, it's just not a replacement for your the advice given to you by your doctor. Um, I think that's all. Here's my conversation with Stu Fishbein, MD. Um, uh, Stu, hey, welcome, welcome to the <laughs> we, we were talking and talking and talking and you encouraged me like, hey, let's just hit record. Yeah. This is what we do. We get on the phone and we just riff for, God, you and I could go on for hours and hours. You need very little introduction, but people have already heard from the pre-recorded intro just how special you are in the world. And before we even get started, I want to acknowledge that you have been a bit of a, a lighthouse for me. Um, to see the signal through the noise. It's kind of becoming a mantra of mine. There's this signal out there of what, uh, of, of who I want to be as a, as, a, as a healthcare professional, as a healer. And I met you very, very early on in my training, not in medical school, but do you remember how we met when I was in residency? 
No, I don't. I, I, I remember our, like one of our first encounters, but and I remember the birth you were at, but I don't remember um, how we met. No. Well, let me let me refresh your memory a little bit. It was a. I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember a lot these days. You don't even remember so, put your shoes on sometimes. So, <laughs> shoes and pants, I'm pretty good at. But, but uh, <laughs> everything else is, you know. There's a, yeah, my mind is so, my mind is so cluttered, and there's so much going on, and I'm multitasking constantly. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, and then this underlying level of stress that's affecting all of us right yes, now. Yes, I think. Yes. I think it it helps us. It, it interferes with focusing. I think because you're yeah, always. It does. Yeah. It's kind of like so. the great distraction right now, where women are still having babies. Women still need compassionate, patient-centered care, and all everybody can think about is some contagion that's out to get us. You know, and all the stuff in the news and all the divisive language. And I know that there's only so much bandwidth we all have for that. So. Um, before we dive into, we're going to talk about medical freedom and everything here. I'm super excited about this this interview. Um, you're, I've been wanting to get you a, sort of in the hot seat for a long time, and <laughs> I'm not going to feel so hot for you because I've got nothing. I've got no gripes. I just love you. And what you're doing for women out there, I know is appreciated because I hear about it from every single person who found me through you or, you know, they're like, wow, you sound a lot like doctors too. Have you ever met him? And I'm like, Actually, I did. I met him in residency. I was a second year resident, Stu. And it was towards the very end of my second year. And for those who don't know, residency is really comprised of it, it, sort of an increasing amount of responsibility you get as a new MD in a specialty, and in this case, OBGYN. And uh, you know, every residency, residency training program is required to teach you certain things so that when you finish, you've hit all the boxes on the checklist, you can now go out and quote, practice safely. And I'm using air quotes intentionally there because safety is really a relative thing. And the way that you and I met is that our program director agreed to bring in you and Milo Chavira wasn't there. Right. Remember right. this? Corinne after Galloway was sitting there. Yeah, I was at Kaiser Permanente in Los Angeles. Yes. And um, our program director was grateful, was graciously, uh, was gracious enough to kind of based on the call of the residents to bring in some some discussion around vaginal breech birth. Because since 2001, as we all know, the term breech trial kind of threw residency training off course and people were no longer, uh, like me, were no longer being taught maneuvers for the occasional nuchal arm or the dystocias that appear when a baby's coming out butt first. So you were there. Across from me was Mila Chavira, who was initially one of my attendings, but he left Kaiser mm -hmm. after my intern year. And at this point in my training, I was still a very much a junior resident. And I was looking around like, how have we never learned any of this stuff? And you were talking about your sort of basic sort of candidacy requirements for vaginal breech birth. Not that those are relative or, or, or absolute in any way, but you were just talking about how you might counsel a person about the likelihood of a vaginal breech birth happening in home, let alone in an operating room with a thousand people watching and all this bright lights and all the other stuff that we talk about. So uh, Elliot Berlin was there, and he was promoting yeah. a new film um, on on uh, on home the heads, up, the heads Up documentary. He heads Up documentary, yeah. yeah well, and I think Beth wasn't Beth Cannon there too. Beth may have been there. I know I met her shortly thereafter, but I don't. I was that this session was a lunchtime session. We were all eating yeah. like Chipotle or something, and I was just like not eating. I was wide eyed, like, how are we not learning this stuff? So I reached out to you afterwards. You then were gracious enough to bring me to a home birth. And it changed everything for me. I went home, had no sleep. We had some some breakfast at your your uh, suite at the uh, was that the 
the Hilton you were, you, were, you were <laughs> the, the Ritz Carlton. Ritz Carlton. Oh my God. Oh, excuse me. That yeah. <laughs> I remember like we went up this luxurious elevator and I was like, who is this guy? And we we had breakfast and I went home to my wife and I was like, I'm excited about this again. And it wasn't so much that I was excited about residency. It was like, man, this guy went through this whole process and came out a very, very different type of doctor who speaks in terms of a patient's rights to informed decision making. And that was really the end of the conversation. Like all I needed to know was like, okay, there's a better way for me to do this. Let me get the, my ducks in a row. I then went to hospice and palliative medicine fellowship. And then I went to Kentucky. And now I'm pretty much doing what you do, except I don't attend nearly as many births because you are a one-man army out in California going to home births of all varieties. And we're talking about across the whole risk stratification baloney <laughs> that we talk about in yep. the conventional we do in practice. So that's how we met. Uh, I was at that birth with Bliss Young, who's become a dear friend of mine, and your, your, your co-pilot on the uh, Birthing Instincts podcast. So if, we'll link that in the show notes. But let's just start, let's start with your story, Stu. I don't know if I've ever heard you tell me the answer to the question I get asked the most. Why on earth did you go into the practice of obstetrics and gynecology? What was it? You were probably in your 20s. You were in med school, I don't know, maybe in the 80s, 90s. And uh, something captivated you. <laughs> I don't know. When were you in med school? Med school was 78 to 82. Oh, my Lord. You're older than you look, man. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, yeah. I'm just, just joshing you. But uh, tell me. Tell me, what was it? What was the impetus? Well, I really never wanted to go to medical school. Um, so I can go back. I'll even go back before that. I wanted to be a forest ranger. <laughs> so I ended up doing gynecology. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's a joke. But, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was... Blind, aimlessly wandering around in undergraduate school at the University of Minnesota, taking science classes, taking general classes, and stuff like that. But by, by my second year, a bunch of my friends were going pre-med. And I said, well, if Lex can do it, and this guy can do it, and Greg can do it, so can I. Sure. So I the pathway, said, okay. Pathway out of college. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I you know, I'm, you know, I, this is stereotyping to somewhat, but I, have a, I had a Jewish mother who, you know, wanted me to be a, a doctor. And I wanted to please my mother. That sort of story about how I ended up probably doing OBGYN is pleasing my mother. Um, but that's a deeper, dark, darker talk <laughs> than today. So I, um, uh, so I decided to go to medical school. And then when you go to medical school, you know, the first two years, as you've described, are essentially didactic. You're sitting in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the second two years are your rotations where you do certain things. And I was still aimless at that time as far as what specialty I wanted to do. I knew that I liked longitudinal care. I knew that I wanted to take care of people over time. So I was leaning toward internal medicine. But then I, my, I did a rotation, which was pediatric oncology, a hemonc. And the kids were really sick and they had fungal infections of their brain and they were on, on amphotericin and some of them, we even had one or two that died during my six week wow. rotation on that service. And it, you know, I was up at night pushing chemotherapy on these poor little kids. And then my next rotation was OB and it was just fortuitous that it was OB. It wasn't yeah. planned that way. And I spent the next six weeks and I was up at four in the morning catching a baby. Mm not pushing chemotherapy. And I thought, hmm, all right. First of all, this is the most wonderful aspect of medicine you can be. You're dealing with people that are healthy, 
and you're bringing and you're dealing with life and that i mean and and yeah. not death but life i mean there's obviously death in every medical specialty but it's mostly about life and you get to do longitudinal care you take care of the woman through her pregnancy or through all her pregnancies or all her 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 whole menstrual life you get to do a little bit of internal medicine you get to do a little bit of endocrinology you get to do a little bit of surgery you get to do a little bit of psychiatry so it had everything in it but it also had catching babies and so at that point in your life, Nathan, you know, you're very naive. You don't think about things like reimbursement. You don't think about things like hours. Yeah. You don't think about lifestyle. You don't think about all that stuff. You think about just what you're in in the moment. And the moment yeah. that seemed like the way to go for me. So that's what I did. And I applied to residency programs like everybody does. I went through the match. And um, I ended up in Southern California at Cedar sinai here in Los Angeles. And I never intended to stay. I was a Minnesota kid, and I intended to go back to Minnesota. But after four years here, I got a really good opportunity to live, and I really liked Southern California. We're talking about early to mid-'80s. Southern California was an entirely different world. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, If you came down from, a, from, a, from a, a planet outside of the solar system to California in 1980, you would look nothing like it does in 2021. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, sure. And that's a whole other topic as well. But um, so it was a great place to live and, and, you know, it was free and you could, and real estate was reasonable and the weather was fantastic. And I got a great job offer in a, in a, in a pre- busy practice in Century City where, you know, I could make a good living while I built my practice by just supporting these guys, covering their call and helping them in surgery. And so that's what I did. And then I just built my practice. So I, at one point I was covering three free clinics and five emergency rooms. Um, because in those days you built your practice by hustling, not by, you know, signing a contract to work a shift for a major corporation. It was a, you hung up your shingle and you built your practice. Right. right. And that's all changed. That's gone now pretty much. And, uh, so that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And then, and then to make the, how I ended up doing home birthing, I think is a well-known story is that I was working in the hospital for 24 years. The hospital I was working at with midwives for 15 years in a collaborative practice, we called it the woman's place. I was working with two CNMs and we had really good statistics and we were out in Ventura County and then slowly but surely, well, actually from the very start, they didn't like us very much. Mm. Uh, we weren't welcome in the community. They were very suspicious of midwives, the good old doctors in the little network. This is a smaller town outside yeah. of Los Angeles. It didn't have academia. So it was run by the same old group. They would just rotate every year. They'd rotate one of their guys to be the new chairman of the department. And they never were accepting us. And gradually they got rid of the midwives. They got rid of VBAC. They got rid of breach birth. And at some point, um, they decided that they were not going to renew my privileges. Uh, it wasn't because we had bad outcomes. It was because I didn't conform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't conform when I was about five years old. So not conforming is nothing new to me. Yeah, I was that little annoying kid that would always ask my parents why, mm. you know, why, mom, why? Mm. Because and the answer that I got most often was because I said so, which, <laughs> <laughs> which, um, you know, never satisfied me then, and certainly doesn't satisfy me now. And you know, with all the tyranny that we have going on, sure, and do this because it's good for you, or do this because ACOG says so, or yeah. do this because it's high risk, and it's that doesn't make any sense to me. Never yeah. did, still doesn't. Yeah. And here you are. You are the uh, you're the man. You are the guy in Southern California, especially that your your catchment area, so to speak, is wide ranging. Um, 
I, when I, when I went to the birth with you, we went down to Temecula and that was at least a two hour drive from LA. So, and you're going further than that even for some births, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I go down to the Mexican border on Whew. this, this side of the border. Yeah. You know, that, that's about a three hour drive from LA. Yeah. And then I go as far North as about three hours. Hmm. Um, I just did a birth up in Tehachapi last week. It was a breach. It was, it was great. It's a good thing it was last week because they got snow yesterday. Is that near Reno? Um, kind of up in that area? No, no, it's not that far up. It's closer to Fresno. Okay, okay. It's sort of central. Um, in central, central California. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's no choices for these people. Sure, sure. And, and then to make matters worse, in 2014, state of California gave midwives uh, autonomy, but they took away their ability to do breaches or twins or anything before 37 weeks or anything after 42 weeks. As right. a blanket policy, as opposed to letting midwives who are highly trained and good at what they do and licensed by the state of California by the same board that licenses doctors, yeah. um, letting them decide what they feel comfortable dealing with. No, no, we have to have one-size-fits-all policies. Yeah. And it was almost like they took a pound of flesh. For giving them their freedom, they took away their freedom. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and now I, I, the, the sentiment I'm feeling from most midwives around the country, especially in California, are, you know, it's the, the sentiment is sort of like, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds, but the hand that feeds is just giving you little drops of kibble just to keep you satiated, just enough to keep you in practice. And, um, and you really are providing the, the, the umbra, the, the scope of options for women. And, and we're going to get into medical freedom here in a second because of what the world's been going through. But... Um, for those of you who don't know Stu's practice, he's attending home births um, and, and what many fresh trainees out of residency would consider, quote, high risk. Well, VBAC, is that high risk? I don't know. Is a twins a high risk birth? Usually not. Um, is a breech birth a high risk? Who knows? But the idea of safety is not a matter of, hey, let's check the boxes and let's put you into this category and then treat you like every other person who happens to fall into this rubric of what high and low risk is. So the term safety is problematic for me because some one patient might have a baby that's going to be born breech and they might consider it less traumatic to go to the hospital and they're willing to assume the risks, even though those risks are very, very small of having a, a breech birth at home. Um, with VBAC or whatever else, you know, in their past, you know, a history of C-section or anything in their past, what you do is you provide them, hey, listen, here's the ample risks, benefits, alternatives, here's all the things. And they're saying, yes, I'm willing to assume those risks because I'm an autonomous, conscious human being. And I want you or Beth Cannon or whoever else, you know, they're going to be there too, but I'm going to make the decision for me. And most of the time, everything goes just fine because they have trained people there, whether it's a midwife, a doctor, or whatever else. The problem I have with the system is we're taking the counseling, the shared decision-making process, perverting it, and then trying to label women as um, home birth acceptable or home birth not acceptable. And actually, from the state of California standpoint, they probably would say home birth is never acceptable based on some study that they never read. Well, ACOG, ACOG says that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and no fewer words. So, right. so you're really providing women the option to birth on their own terms without completely, uh, without completely abandoning the safety of quote modern medicine. So again, thank you for doing that work. I, I don't want to necessarily go into specific birth stories, but over 
um, because there's plenty of that on your Instagram page. We're going to link all of that in the show. In every one of your episodes, you and Bliss share your podcast episodes. You guys share amazing birth stories, which quite literally change the game. These are healing experiences for women who had these traumatic births in the hospital, right? Or not even a traumatic birth. They just preferred to have it at home because they felt safe and heard and seen there. Um, so if you guys want to hear stories about these specific births, they are things you would never hear about. They would be patients that would automatically be rolled back to the OR without thinking about abnormal placentation in future pregnancies, without thinking about the complications that you and I both know as surgeons. If you go into an abdomen that's operated on three times, the risk of bladder injury goes up, the risk of ureteral injury goes up, the risk of hemorrhage goes up, you know, the risk of hysterectomy goes up. So we're forgetting about all these downstream consequences of us just rushing everybody to the OR because they're, quote, high risk based on some poorly stratified rubric. rubric. And, um, and so without you, without the ability for you to do that or midwives to do that, we're going to continue going down this slippery slope of worse maternal and neonatal outcomes in the United States, across North America, across a lot of Western Europe now, too, um, that results from us just making these flippant decisions on behalf of women who can't possibly make decisions for themselves to roll them back to the OR and do a C-section for everything under this. I'll stop there and just let you comment on that. Yeah, you know, listening to you is really easy for me because essentially you're me. And all the things that you said are the things that when I get interviewed or when I talk to patients face-to-face -face in the office, we call them clients, we don't call them patients because they're right. not sick. Right. Um, I have the time to do this because the, med the midwifery model that we follow, the, the visits are at least an hour, you know, an average of an hour long. So we have time to go through the risks and benefits of everything. So when I listen to you talk, it's like, well, I don't need to say anything because he's saying everything that I, that I would say. <laughs> and, it, and it's true. I mean, even in the documentary, and I, I you know that was, that was about eight, nine years ago, and I've yeah. changed since then. I've evolved even more. But I even said that all things being equal, breach birth should be done in the hospital because there you have emergency help available. I think I said it exactly like that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I remember but, that. But I said then all things aren't equal. And they're even less equal now than they were eight, nine years ago. Um, the problem is, is that the medical model sees one goal and one goal only. And that if people listen to me, they know that it's a crying baby in the bassinet. And how it gets there doesn't make any difference to them. Now, I'm not saying the individual doctors think that way, but the system thinks that way. And the yeah. individual doctors are, are cogs in the system because they all are stuck working in an institution that tells them how to do things. And if they don't, they're going to get ostracized like I did. Right. Or two, they work for a company that doesn't even allow them to choose what formulary they use yeah. uh, for yeah. medicines or whatever. So as you, you know that very well. Yeah. So um, we're stuck with a system that doesn't allow women to the freedom to make these choices and basically considers every woman to be a potentially high risk patient. Right. They by calling someone high risk, they you, you know, I always said that sort of makes them high risk. And so if you wanted to find high risk in a woman, you could do that. You could say, well, geez, you know, you're over 35. Right. Or geez, you're you're only 22. Right. Or geez, you're a primep. Now primep is considered high risk according to the <laughs> anti-home birth guys. Amazing. Yeah, um, so you know, amazing. you know who I'm talking about, the two guys. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, being a primip is, is a contraindication to having a home birth. All right. So, but their C-section rate for primips is 30, 40%. The C-section rate for primips in a midwifery practice is what, five, 7%? Maybe? If that, yeah. Right. 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 So um, what's the, what's the difference? The difference is the model by which they're caring for them. And yet we are the outsiders. We're the ostracized ones because we don't conform to them. But ultimately, 
Methinks thou dost protest too much when they keep constantly saying how certain they are of their position and how I always say that it's not my skepticism that should bother you, it's their certainty that should bother you. And that goes along with the COVID stuff too that, that maybe you'll get to. But, you know, my practice, 3% of term pregnancies are breach. About 1 in 30, 1 in 40 women are, have twins. So that's about 3% also. So technically, an average doctor should have uh, 6% of their patients should be breaches or twins. My practice is 44% breaches and twins Yeah, because there aren't choices. The problem is I'm limited because I'm just one guy and I charge a certain amount of money and some people can't afford it. So there is that, that limitation there that, that, that goes on. But ultimately, yeah. people are, they, women want these choices. They're just, they, just, they just aren't yeah. being made available. And there is so much evidence to support these choices as legitimate, and yet the, re- the people that run our academic programs are not teaching future generations. They're the people I'm really angry with. Yeah. If I have to be angry with anybody, Nathan, it's how do you come out of residency program in OBGYN not knowing how to do something that's three to 4% of all deliveries? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And, and how you do you consider yourself, how do you call yourself an obstetrician? And if I were a resident and came out not knowing how to do a breach delivery, I'd be upset with my residency program. And the other thing too, is that with twins, so many women, uh, so many women with pregnant with twins, about, let's see, over 50% of twins, one of the twins is going to be breach, right? About 44% are vertex vertex and the other ones at least have one breach. Right. There are so many doctors who will, who won't do a single breach delivery even if it's a second twin, right. they'll say that you need to have a C-section. And they certainly will never consider a first twin breach. But my statement is this. Breaches are sometimes surprises at the end, but twins you know all along. Right. If you're an OBGYN and you're not comfortable with a second twin breach, then why are you even doing twins at all? Right, right. You could, at 10 weeks or 12 weeks, yeah, 10 weeks or 12 weeks, you could say to that woman, you know, I'm not a twin expert. I'm going to send you to somebody who's a twin expert. Yeah. But they don't. And the reason they don't is, you know, they don't think about it. Maybe it's ego. Maybe it's economic. Sure. Uh, I I don't really want to place blame. But there's something about it. You're not an expert in twins. Why are you taking care of twins? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's an incomplete educational process. And to illustrate this for for everybody. Um, I, I don't know if you remember me calling you when I was uh, still practicing in Encinitas, California, in um, when I was in fellowship. I don't I was, I remember that. I told you I don't remember that stuff. Well, well you're you're older than me. I, I've got a mind like an elephant. You know, I'll, let me let me give you a gentle re you know nudge here because yeah. you said something that was really helpful to me, and really helped illustrate this. So I was covering for Nick Capitanakis's practice and um, down in San Diego, another great yeah, I remember that physician, and um, he had a patient who. Uh, had twins. They were die-die twins. That's the lowest risk of all the twin um, possibilities. And um, that means that they have separate sacs, separate placenta. It's basically two separate pregnancies that are completely operating separately. And there's very, very little to worry about. We can let, you know, we, we, we generally let them go until far later before we start getting, even in our training, you know, from what our, our training taught us, like we don't get excited as we do with like Momo twins or, or, or Modi twins or whatever. But this patient, was really, really opposed to having an induction. She was very healthy. She was like an aerialist, silk aerialist. I mean, she was strong. She and her husband were very, very holistic in their approach to living. And I knew that, like I could tell, like these are people that don't want to have interventions. So 39 weeks comes, 40 weeks come, 
almost 41 weeks and she is still pregnant. And at this point, we're just doing like weekly NSTs. We check in once in a while and she's like, no, I'm just going to keep riding this out. So for twins to get to, die-dye twins to get to 40 weeks is still, you know, that's on the, you know, two standard deviations above the mean, immediate yeah. mean. But the, the point of the story is that eventually she was like, I'm going to start drinking red raspberry leaf tea. She went into labor. Uh, we, we did some cervical ripening as well to kind of get things going there with a Foley balloon, no medication. She had a very, very, very normal labor pattern. And then the move is let's get them all to the OR just in case, right? The second twin, by the way, was transverse head left. So I was like, guys, we can bring the team in here, but like, this is just a normal birth. Remember that. Like, let's not get all flustered. Sure. If the hospital policies go to the OR, that's fine. After the first birth, we'll reassess the second baby and we'll either do an extraction We'll do a version. We'll do whatever. And if we have to do a C-section, of course we can do that. But the the, C, the OR is right there. No problem. So they roll them over there. The baby comes out completely fine. There's music. It's this beautiful tears. The mom and dad are just gushing over this baby. And then the second baby, I do a little baby, like a little gentle version. The head comes down. The head's kind of engaged a little bit. But I was like, you know what? Let's go back to the delivery room. I'll go start documenting. Maybe the baby will come. Baby didn't come right away. Just went right back into normal labor. She's breastfeeding. So there's all this natural oxytocin flowing through. And I rode back to Cap's house where I was staying while I was covering his practice. And, and then I got a call. And I was, a, I was like a mile from the hospital. I get a call. And they're like, Dr. Riley, I think the second baby's coming. So 12 hours later, I fly down the hill and I barely even make it in time for the second kid. I actually think the nurse caught the kiddo and I was like, whoa, there we go. So I texted you afterwards because you, you had told me, you know, I, I reviewed the I reviewed the steps of the breach extraction because I hadn't done it since residency. And but it's not rocket science. You know, you grab the heels and you pull. You make sure you have heels, make sure you have both of them, break the water, and you pull the baby out if you had to. Um, but we didn't have any reason to do that. We just sit back and let let this process take place, let this sacred process unfold. So I get down there, the ba second baby comes out. I, the dad is over the moon, the mom's over the moon. I go out and get them a six pack of his favorite beer because he's been, he's like, man, we've been waiting to get drink beer again, you know? And so I brought them some beer and we just rested. And then I texted you and you were like, this is what you said to me. You said, congratulations, you're in the top 0.1% of OBGYNs that knows how to manage normal pregnancy. Normal, you said normal physiologic birth. And it really, really touched me. It really made me see, it made me feel witnessed and seen because in the residency training program, you would never, ever let, let, you know, there it is, the permission thing, 12 hours between twins. It's just, it's just impossibly, it's impossible for them to imagine that happening. And yet we it's have- even, It's even hard for me at this point to still imagine that even though- Yeah. I know you've done that. Chavira has done that. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and, and I mean, if I had to drive three hours from home, and then have to wait 12 hours for the second twin, it would be, it would be tricky. I mean, and that's part of the reason that your practice is, is probably so hard to maintain sometimes because it's like, while I want to do that, you also have the temptation to kind of speed the process up. In this case, I didn't, I had the luxury of just letting everything happen. And the mom and dad were so grateful. But what you said to me really stuck with me. And it, it has reminded me, like, we are not dealing with medical pathology. Pregnancy is not a disease, like you said. This is just something that the body is doing. And in that case, we saved her surgery. I didn't have to reach up in there and do this uncomfortable. She was unmedicated too, by the way. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to get up there and reach for heels and start mucking around in the uterus. Just let the baby come out. And it did. But that wasn't modeled for me, my for me in my training. And if, and if it did end up coming out um, 
you know, feet first, or even the rump ended up descending. And then we had a breech birth. I was ready to do that as well. But I didn't do a hundred of those. You know, I didn't, I did 500 C-sections or something in, uh, in residency. I never did a uh, hundred breech births. And so to your point, had that happened, I would have been like, whoa, okay, like, let's really put, let's really get situated here to do something that I've only seen a couple times. Had I seen this a hundred times in residency, then this would have been no problem at all. But most 99% of people would have just gone straight to C-section uh, because that second baby wasn't cephalic. And, um, and so this practice that you and I are starting to, to really try to float as a life draft for people is only sustainable if we can get more people comfortable with the practice of sitting back and doing nothing, just letting it <laughs> unfold until our incredible knot tying skills actually you know, come, in, come in handy. Yeah, I would, add, I would add to that that the reason that I feel comfortable with breech birth is because when I was training, it was still considered yeah. a variation of normal. And I, as part of the Cedar sinai residency program, I spent four months at L.A. County, USC, which at that point in the early 80s was the busiest hospital in the country, doing about 22,000 births a year, wow. which comes out to be about 65 a day. So, so if you are doing 65 births a day on the labor floor, not me personally, we have a team of about 10 people, I think, um, but you're seeing at least probably two, on average, two breaches a day. Wow. And you're there for three months in the, on the labor and delivery unit, two or three months not to mention the antepartum unit, but so you get exposed to that. The residents now are not getting exposed to it and they're, and they're not even bringing in people to do hands-on training or anything like that in most residency programs. There are some, and again, whenever we, we never say always or never, and you, right. and you and you and I both know that, but when we're talking, we're speaking in general terms that they're just not, they're not teaching anymore. And it is such an easy, beautiful thing to do with a breech birth, but back to your twin birth, you know, in, in the normal hospital setting, you have like 16 people in the room for twins. Yeah. And the reason the first baby comes out and you, you know, we used to immediately clamp the cord and hand the baby not to the mother, but to the first team. Mm. And then because you have an anesthesiologist standing there doing nothing and you have a NICU, uh, two NICU teams or, or two pediatric teams standing there doing nothing, you would generally go immediately up and break the bag of waters right. and have her push the second twin out. Right. And that, that's what we did. And we didn't have the patient. So that's what people think is normal for twins. Now, I have found, just be, if we're getting a little bit technical, I have found that going a long time between first twin and second twin, what's called the twin-to-twin interval, I, there's two things that the, that literature says. One is that you're more likely to get a slightly ac- acidotic baby B. And two is that I'm, I've seen more likely to get a postpartum hemorrhage. Now, you didn't have that with your 12-hour lady. Mm-hmm. lady. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it quite frequently. So I try to limit that between 30 to 60 minutes between the two. But it's not, it's not three minutes unless it naturally occurs right, right. three minutes. Right. 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 And, right. And, you know, <clears throat> the way that the counseling went for this patient was not like, hey, we're going to do it this way. We're not doing a C-section. It wasn't even that. It was like, hey, here are the options. Here's the way a second twin can, can come. And if there is that long interval, yeah, we can, we can see hemorrhage. We can see all kinds of things. You can see hemorrhaging like a bit of an abruption even during that interval. So you have to be aware of it. And fortunately, they're in the hospital. They're being monitored. And they were aware that like, hey, listen, if anything changes, I'll let you know. And we'll go back to the conversation around risks, benefits, alternatives. And they were totally open to that. You know, yeah, and, it was, and, the ti- and the time to do this conversation isn't right in the labor room. Right. The time to have this conversation is antenatally. And Again, the medical model doesn't allow sometimes these kinds of long conversations yeah. or Q&A. And, and I would say to people listening that 
if your doctor doesn't have time, it do doesn't seem to have the time for you when you're asking questions or seems to roll his eyes or be a little bit annoyed. Um, that's a, there's certainly a red flag that you should consider looking elsewhere. And the country needs to shift toward the midwifery model of care. We need to shift more toward midwives. Um, we need to stop considering midwives a lesser subset of obstetrics and having obst obstetricians make decisions as to how midwives practice. That, that I think is one of the biggest flaws in, uh, in the legislation that goes on in most of the country. Yeah. Is um, whenever there's midwifery legislation, they're always asking the doctors what, what they would do. And it's, the doctors don't know anything right. when it comes to, when, I mean, that, I, yeah, that's a little bit hyperbolic, hyperbolic, but they really don't know anything about the midwifery model of care. They can't right. even fathom right. Right. giving people right. all these choices and letting them do something that they're not comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, at, at the heart of all of this conversation is really a person's choice. It's a, it's how do I want to practice as a physician? How does a midwife want to practice as a, as a midwife? How does a patient or a client want to give birth? And while there's all the reasons in the world for people to have hospital births or home births or whatever, when you take a person's ability to make the informed decision out of the counseling, the antenatal counseling, what ends up happening is people are kind of shoved down, shoved into the current, and they have to go along with the current, or they're left with the only option, which is to maybe even have a free birth, to not have anybody attend because they've risked out of midwifery care. And if they end up in the hospital, they know they're going to end up with a C-section because they have two prior C-sections or, or whatever. So let's talk a little bit about medical freedom. Um, <clears throat> yes, we're going to talk about COVID. Yes, we're going to talk about vaccines. Hopefully this interview doesn't get taken down, but I think that we can talk about this in a very responsible way because we've already set the scene for how this has played out for me and you over years and years and years, for you even decades. Now we're seeing this, everybody's being confronted with this thing where somebody is saying, you have to do this thing this way. And when the person who's being told mandated to do this thing says, hey, I need more information, they're saying, no, you don't need more information. You just have to do it this way. This is exactly what we've been talking about with birth. But now everybody universally is being confronted with this. So I'm going to leave it there, Stu. What is going on in the world and where are we heading? Uh, how are we going to get out of this? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I actually, I don't know that we are going to get out of it because not enough people um, either know enough or are going to raise their voices and, and, right. and stand up against the tyranny. It's really a, you, what you're saying. We, like you said, in the in the obstetrical profession, we've known for a long time about about skewed informed consent and about uh, algorithmic uh, medicine and about how if you don't follow what they're saying to you, then you're a non-compliant patient. Right. And, and you're threatened with child protective services, even though medical ethics in every aspect of it dictates that coercion of any kind is never acceptable. Right. It's used all the time, every day in every office, as is confirmation bias and, and skewed counseling. Um, I just have to tell you today, Nathan, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, yeah. but today, this morning, I got my email from uh, Evidence-Based Birth, so a group I support, yep. and uh, their new podcast came out today, and they interviewed a woman a physician about the misinformation on COVID. This was the title of it. And I'm going, Oh shit. Oh no. Yep. And there was one of those interviews where the doctor, everything she said was either could be disputed, was pejorative, was demeaning toward anybody who has a different of opinion. She said it in a very nice way. Yeah. And I'm sure she's very sincere about it. 
And, and, and that once did Re uh, Rebecca, who does the interviews, did she yeah. challenge the woman on anything that she said? I recorded a podcast this morning by myself because Bliss was not available. Unfortunately, because of the holidays, it's not going to come out until January. I'd like to get it out sooner because of the timeliness of it. Yeah. Where I went through with everything, you know, I went, I took notes. I mean, here I am. It's a 38 minute podcast where I'm sitting in bed this morning and I, there's other things I'd rather be doing. Um, not in bed, but I don't even go there. All right. Um, but I mean, there's other things I could be doing, but I felt compelled to listen to what this is happening. And I'm not, we, from our side of the argument, we, we sometimes get a little snarky, but we don't attack people personally for their beliefs about masks or vaccines yeah. or, or booster shots or vaccines in pregnancy. But the certainty of these people yeah. that they're right and then anybody who says anything different is giving out misinformation. Whenever you hear the word misinformation, the person using it is probably lying. Hey everybody, quick break. I wanted to talk to you about our sponsor, waveblock.com. They make these uh, stickers for your earbuds and your iPhones. They slap on there and they block most of the EMF, the radiation coming from these devices. Remember, there's powerful modems in your earbuds, especially in your phone, and they are putting out uh, some, some, uh, some, in, some high intensity signals that you don't want to block all of, right? You don't want to block all of the signal transmission from these devices because that will compromise the sound of the podcast you're listening to probably right now with your cell phone in your pocket and your earbuds in your ear holes. The issue is that that low dose radiation all day long is going to have downstream consequences. So Ben Salem, the owner of Waveblock, has designed these stickers and everything from the adhesive to the composition of the stickers themselves blocks as much of that radiation as we can without compromising signal. And um, the earbuds, remember, right in the ear holes. They're like millimeters from your brain. you got to protect that brain, guys. And then your cell phones, you're, you're, you've got, you're slinging it around your fanny pack or in your pocket right next to your gonads. And that, that low-dose radiation, you know, it's just peppering you all day long. So do yourself a favor. Compliment all the harmonizing technologies have by blocking some of that radiation from your phone and your earbuds. Go to waveblock.com. Use code BELOVED to save 10% at checkout. And it would do us a solid. It would it would do Ben a solid, the the owner of Waveblock, and um, and um, it would do yourself a solid. So win win win. That is all. Let's get back to my conversation with Stu Fishbein. Yeah. All right. Or the, because science is about challenges, and there's plenty of evidence on the other side of the argument. Whatever they're saying, there's evidence against that. That's and right. so they're cherry picking their evidence to decide that the vaccine, and then if I hear the word safe and effective one more time about yeah. the vaccine. I'd smash my head off of a brick. <laughs> yeah, they're saying this safe and effective vaccine, but you need to get a booster shot, all right? Well, first Super of all- You have to get a booster every six months. Right? Every six months. And, and, and if you look at the studies out of Israel and other countries, you know, it's the, it's the vaccinated people that by far majority are having re recurrences or, re or resurgence or reinfections with COVID. Now there's unvaccinated people too, but the unvaccinated people are not a threat if the vaccine is safe and effective. Exactly. And unvaccinated people who aren't sick right. are not spreading the virus. Right, right. Yet we've, we've convinced people, people I know, people I love, people in my own family, that I'm a danger to them because I choose to be unvaccinated. 
right? And I've, you know, and I've been sort of ostracized from some family events, weddings and yeah. Thanksgiving and probably Christmas and everything else because um, I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. Now I know that that they would say, well, you know, you blah blah blah. Well, you got your grandma's going to be there or something. Grandma's not. I'm not a threat to grandma. I'm not sick. Right. Grandma's been vaccinated. Grandma's wearing a mask. Right. Okay. right. Uh, so right. your bit, your broader question is: um, right now we're seeing medical tyranny at its worst. And and it and if anybody still believes that anything that's being said out of the CDC or Fauci's mouth or anything else is about health then they're being really completely naive. Yeah. You don't know anything. None of this is about health. None of it, right? We're way beyond that now. Healthy people should live their lives. People that are sick should stay home. That's exactly like any that. other flu, any other cold we've ever had, this is not more deadly or more dangerous than a lot of things. It's just been used to change the world. Right, right. Uh, I don't see how it ends. Yeah, I don't. I, don't see how it is. I have friends in Australia. I have friends in Canada. They can't travel. They can't uh, if they're not vaccinated. And even if they're vaccinated, they still if they go out of the country, they have to come back and be quarantined for two weeks. It's it's it, it, it's insanity. Mm-hmm. And then and then if you if you escape quarantine, there was a manhunt for three kids that got out of a quarantine camp in Australia a couple weeks ago, and they were doing police roadblocks. <laughs> looking for these people and they're hauling people off airplanes yeah because they because they might have been exposed to somebody who might have had covid even though they have a negative pcr test to get on the plane in the first place and the fact that i again i did a podcast not too long ago where i i looked at the uh, nuremberg codes yeah and i don't know if you listened to that one but i haven't but heard it, it, no it was very emotional for me it's the name of the podcast is um i do not consent it was bliss came up with the name and that and it's that's the name of the podcast. Yeah. Um, that. Uh, now, see, I lost my train of thought. This, this is what happens. Well, to me well you, I, you were talking I, about what's happening in 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 Australia. You're you're, and then you guys were going to put together a uh, a podcast about about some of the tyranny that you're seeing worldwide. Well, I did. No, I've I've done lots of podcasts on that. But my my point was being is that the fact that I in Los Angeles cannot go into a restaurant without showing papers. This is where I was going with this. <laughs> All right. I have to show papers. Some guy that's making $15 an hour has been assigned to be the COVID warden. Uh, probably he has he or she doesn't want to do that. He or she is a hostess at a restaurant. And they have to ask you for your papers and your ID. Can't don't need an ID to vote. And I know I'm going off on a different tangent, but you need an ID to eat at the, your local restaurant or to go to a Kings game, a hockey game, or to go to a concert, or to go to a movie theater in Los Angeles. And then I have friends that live in Texas and Florida, who when I tell them this stuff, they're they like, what? <laughs> so, but I don't know how long that there's going to be these isolated islands, whether they're going to get bigger and expand and other states are going to revolt, or these tyr- the, the tyrannical people that are running this stuff are going to crack down and make it make it worse. I don't see how it gets better. They obviously don't believe what they're saying. Right. Because none of them follow their own rules. Mm. So, again, it's not about health. And if it's not about health, then it, it, it can't be cured when people are health, when this thing is over. And by the way, this woman on this evidence-based birth podcast today and this doctor from UCLA who I talk about in this upcoming podcast that I'll have, 
They both said that this will end when everyone in the, is, in the world is vaccinated. Yeah. Which is not possible, first of, of course. all. Yeah. Yeah. And then they say something that's really stupid. They say, why wouldn't you get this vaccine? It's free. <laughs> hey, you can all even right? get ice cream. You can get a blunt in Amsterdam if you go and uh, get vaccinated. Or well, the, Burger King, uh, you know, whatever. In California, they're offering $55,000 to medical practices that would sign up for the CalVax program. Wow. And you can get a, you can get a stipend for, for they want to increase vaccination rates. Since when do you have a product that's good, that's useful, that's, uh, that you have to bribe people to do it? <laughs> I mean, and this doesn't raise red flags because people are just following along. Right, right. And people are uncomfortable hearing news that that upsets them that makes them uncomfortable that's why fox listeners only listen to fox right. and cnn listeners only listen to cnn and the never the two shall meet and and people on instagram follow people that are like-minded that's why i said early in the in this interview i said i love listening to you because you're me and mm -hmm. i don't get to hear people who sound like me very often it's usually the opposite yeah. So it's, I find listening to you. Plus, you have a very calming voice. <laughs> you do. You have a great. You have a great radio voice, by the way. Yeah. There, there's one thing I, I I'm trying to look. I, I'm I'm going to try to find the episode on uh, Rebecca Decker's podcast that you're talking about because <clears throat> it's episode 204. It came out today. 204. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to find it. Her her uh, podcast isn't on your podcast app on your phone. It's only on iTunes or or. Um, okay. Okay, well, well, we'll link it in the show notes when I can track it down. Please link it in the show notes because people should listen yeah. to it to hear with, with such glee and such confidence that they're telling you these things right? and that Rebecca isn't challenging her not once during the entire interview does she challenge her. And, yeah. and, and, and that website is a great website for a lot of stuff. But not this topic. Not this topic. I, I, I kind of get the sense when I hear these types of things, I kind of get the sense that somebody had to pick a side and by the way, the term unvaccinated makes no sense. You can't be unvaccinated. Once you get it, you can't unget it. So for all the people out there who were vaccinated, that's great. And if we're going to convince them that, that they were wrong, it doesn't make a difference. They can't get undo it. You know, they may feel bad about it. My, my mom and her husband actually have regret about getting it now because they watched Dope Sick, which is a show by Michael Keaton on uh, Hulu. It's about the whole opioid epidemic and, uh, you know, Purdue Pharma and all that. And they came to to see us when we we just had a home birth. I don't know if you knew that we had a home birth of a little baby girl a couple of weeks ago. And um, yeah, no, I saw. I think you you said something about that. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we had a two hour labor, breathe breath work. Baby came out of sleep like the most incredible birth experience we've ever had or I've ever had. And congratulations. Thank you, thank you. And um, I lost my train of thought there a little bit. Um, You're talking about dope sick and uh, right. family members, right? right? See, I have to. Good, I got you. See, yeah. Look, maybe I'm the one that <laughs> I got you covered. I've got pregnancy brain. I got postpartum dad brain. I, I've got an excuse. Okay. <laughs> um, so they came to the. They came into the kitchen one time. The first day they were there, they were going to stay for a whole month to help care for the baby when the baby came. And they said, "We saw this great show on Hulu. It's called Dope Sick. Have you guys seen it?" And I said, "No. Tell me about it." And she, and she said, "Well." It talks about how the pharmaceutical companies used legislation and lobbying to really change policies on how opioids were distributed. They created a vital sign of pain for hospitals so that every patient was going to be guaranteed opioids after they leave. And what a they were like, what a racket. I can't believe that the pharmaceutical companies could have so much power over medical, <laughs> medical policy making. Sorry. And my wife and I were looking at it because my, my mom and, and 
one of the contentious topics in our family has been they are the only ones that got the vaccine. And um, they only got one. They didn't want to do the boosters. They thought, you know, we're relatively healthy. We'll get the one and just go back to living. But um, who, who's going to convince somebody who already got this that, like, maybe that was wrong? It's a hard thing to, to, to get around. So, well, wh why do we don't need to do that? Oh, of course not. Of course right. not. So, so we, we've never addressed it with them because, like, what's the point? Like, you guys already got it. As long as you guys are cool with hugging us and we can still be a good, big, jolly family, that's fine. But as they were saying this about the pharmaceutical companies and opioids, you could have replaced opioids with the COVID vaccine, whatever, and it would have made exactly as much sense. So my wife and I were kind of looking at each other from across the room like, yeah, yeah, it is interesting that big pharma is like really kind of driving policies. It's interesting. I wonder, I think later that day we went out to dinner for... Um, for my, my mom's husband's birthday. And, um, or no, my, it was my mom's, my, my mom's birthday. And I said, do you guys think maybe like what you guys were talking about with the Michael Keaton thing, do you think that it could be applied to like vaccines and stuff too? I mean, I just, I wasn't trying to be arrogant with it, but I was just trying to nudge that issue into the conversation. And I think they thought about it for a long time. And, and lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with my mom and she was like, you know, Paul and I are actually kind of having some regrets about getting this vaccine. Like dope sick thing really has stirred up some controversy within them about, you know, what is really at play here? You know, in, in the solo cast that I sent you that I, I recorded a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how, you know, big pharma is investing heavily into medical education. Big pharma's dollars are everywhere now. Yep, everywhere. And even the pharmacy is not wanting to fill ivermectin. I'm calling them up and saying, hey, can I get a five day course, six milligrams a day of ivermectin? Super low dose. I've had good effect. Sorry, it's against policy. It's off-label use. In the in the Solocast, I list 20 different medications we commonly prescribe in, in both palliative care and, and obst in obstetrics and gynecology that are off-label uses. Like um, misoprostol. Oh, Bliss and, <laughs> yeah, Bliss and I did the same thing. You know, yeah. butylene, yeah. misoprostol, exactly. nifedipine, exactly. uh, even, even uh, pitocin. Yeah, exactly. It's, We're using it's all not, kinds of it's not for augmentation of labor. Sure, it's it's sure. it's it's for medical induction and postpartum hemorrhage, and we right. use it for all you know, all these other things. Yeah, you know, and another thing, just in our in our profession, you may not remember this because it was before your time, but when I was a resident and before I was a resident, um, when women gave birth, on the standing order sheet was a box you could check to give them a shot to dry up their milk. <laughs> Okay, because we gave them, we want to give them formula. Yeah, yeah. And the formula companies used to come to our office, and they used to, and they're big, same companies, and they would um, uh, buy us lunch. There's those there were less laws against right, it. They right. would buy take us lunch. They take us to stuff. the Laker game. They do stuff, and they give us these beautiful gift bags to give to every pregnant woman. That had all kinds of information, and it. it was a tote bag, and it and it had of course some formula in it. And I for years. When, when women had their baby, we would give them a shot of something called Del Estrogen or Delodimone. Wow. And it would dry up their breast milk so they wouldn't get engorgement because they were, we were told that, that and this was in the 80s. Yeah. So this is not that long ago. There's a bit of a pushback on it now, but still in many parts of the world, pharmaceutical companies are pushing formula on hospitals right. to push it on their doctors, to push right. it on their patients. Right. Um, and a lot of people are complying with that. Yeah. And again, it gets back to a, a broader topic of every time you mess with Mother Nature, whether it be formula or a vaccine or something, there's always going to be it's unseen consequences. Yeah. There, yeah, that's great. Agriculture. Yeah. You're always going to have unseen consequences. The hubris of to think that you're going to 
give somebody something and there isn't going to be something downstream like saying giving them oxytocin or giving every giving 90% of women in labor an epidural right right that oh it's like a toothache <laughs> no it's not like a toothache there's a communication a, going a on between mother and baby and it's a process and nature has designed it over thousands if not hundreds of thousands of yeah. years yeah. and you're suddenly making a woman numb the baby's still dealing with all this stuff now mom's disconnected and it's just a theory but it's based on a smart observation of, of how nature works. Yeah. Every time you mess with something, you mess with something else. You come up with penicillin, you get, you get MRSA. You, yeah. come, you, know, you, you, just, you just do. So if we don't think that there's going to be consequences to little kids wearing masks all the time, or and we already know that the vaccines, we've got autoimmune diseases in children are up from like, what, 5% uh, 30 years ago to 54% now? Right. All right. Now, right. is that only based on vaccination? I don't know. Yeah. All right. I mean, but, there's but foods the question, have changed. It, that's asking the question is what you're supposed to be doing. You are a, a doctor and you are asking the questions, but people are saying, no, 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 no. Those aren't the, the we're not asking the right questions. You're not allowed to ask those questions. You're, you're only you're allowed not. to talk about masks and vaccines. Yeah. And that's it. You're not allowed to talk about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. You know, in the in the podcast that you'll listen to on evidence based um, Rebecca says, you know, in, in the early 2020, there was no, there was no therapeutics. I mean, is she, she's completely ignoring literature from Zelenko and oh, yeah, Israel totally. out of Brazil, out of South Africa about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. You know, that doesn't matter because it's not the narrative. Not part of the narrative. And, yeah. and when you, and when you have people that have control of the media and control of big tech and stuff like that, all following the same pattern, it's, it's. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. It is, yeah. I mean, yeah. and how do you change people's minds when you can't get the information out there when you get censored or you get, you get fired? Right. Um, you know, I get contacted all the time about from people who want to have, keep their job, but their job says they have to be vaccinated, but they're early pregnant and they don't want to be vaccinated. Not that pregnancy should make any difference. They don't want to be vaccinated. They shouldn't have to be vaccinated. Right. Right. Um, and, and the doctors that they're going to will not write them an exemption letter. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not talking about an exemption letter for school, like in California, where the medical board can come and take my license away yeah. because I wrote yeah. an exemption for somebody like they did to several doctors here, including our friend Paul Thomas up in, uh, yeah. in Oregon. Yeah. And, and there's a doctor in Minnesota, the same thing that happened to him. His name escapes me for the moment. But um, I'm just talking about a letter to their employer yeah. saying that she's pregnant. I don't think it's a good idea right now for her to get the vaccine. Maybe later it's fine, but right now it's no. And and the, and certain corporate doctors will not even write those letters for them because their corporation will not let them do it. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of things, a couple of things that come to mind. First off, we use the word, uh, especially for people who are talk speaking out against misinformation. They tend to use the word proven. And I would caution anybody out there to say that anything has ever been proven by medical science. Proof, a proof is a mathematical concept. What we can say is that our best understanding of what's happening was demonstrated by this study. They demonstrated that X, Y, and Z might happen if you input this thing into the system. To say that we have proven efficacy and safety is actually antithetical to science because that says that there's no more questions to be asked. It's been proven. Right, you, you yeah. It's like when they say safe and effective. It's, they it's exactly the vaccine. It's safe and effective. Safe and effective. Yeah. You, keep, you know, it's the old, uh, it's the old Goebbels thing where if you you say something, you repeat it, whether it's true or not. You say it often enough, loud enough, 
uh, eventually it becomes part of your dialogue and becomes considered truth. Right. 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 And it's not safe and effective. Right. It may be safe and effective for some people, but it may be unsafe and ineffective for other people. Yeah, that's right. Unaffective, ineffective. ineffective. Yeah, ineffective. Sorry, that didn't sound right. Um, and it is. And 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 every, if you know enough people that have gotten it, you know people that have gotten sick from from the vaccine. You know people that have gotten COVID after they've had the vaccine. You know people who haven't gotten vaccinated who've gotten sick, right. but at least they haven't had a side effect from the vaccine. Right. Right. Yeah, a couple of little mini stories. I was at a, a birthday party out, um, uh, a friend of mine, Paul Check's birthday party out in um, Escondido, out in San Diego County area, and um, they had a, he had a birthday party, and there was a you know let's say there was a hundred people there, about twenty percent of them were vaccinated, and their little girl actually started having vaginal bleeding the next day. I don't know what to make of that. I'm not saying that I've looked at it was the effects of shedding or anything else that people have hypothesized. But this is a family that has never had any exposure to vaccinated people until that party. And their little girl, who's two, is having some bleeding in her diaper. Don't even know where the bleeding was from, but it wasn't rectal. It wasn't like she had traumatized her vulva, you know, the, the baby's vulva. And these are already people that are already hyper, sort of hypersensitive to that language. It's safe and effective. Well, then why is my little girl's diaper bloody, you know? I, again, I don't know why that happened. It could have been a red herring. It could have been anecdotal. Who cares? The point being that um, another example, a, a midwife I collaborate with, she reached out about a baby who developed ITP, or not a baby, the mom developed ITP. She happens to be in Germany, um, this, this midwife, and her uh, patient has ITP, which is you know an immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, which is extremely rare. And it's even more rare that the kiddo would be affected and end up with ventricular bleeding or hemorrhage or whatever else. And the only thing that she could identify about this woman was that she had just gotten the vaccine and about six weeks later, suddenly her platelets plummeted. Now, it could be gestational thrombocytopenia, but it was 37,000 platelets. I mean, that's a very, very low amount. So I'm not saying I have the answers. I know that you're certainly not saying you have the well, answers. Well, there, there, you know, there, there are reports in the, I mean, there are enough reports in the various reporting system, yeah. which people people who, who don't want to say there's any side effects will just criticize VAERS. Right. But- They'll use VARES to say that other vaccines are safe because there's so many, you know, so they'll use it when they want to. It's, again, right. their confirmation bias. Yeah, it's, exactly. like, it's like ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, months before there was any data about safety in pregnancy, safety in breastfeeding, sent out a, a thing, saying, a, a notice saying that, that they recommended for pregnant women and breastfeeding women. <laughs> there was no data. Then all of a sudden, data starts coming out saying it's safe and pregnancy and breastfeeding, right? There's data that says it isn't too, but it is sort of interesting, Nathan, to see how the system really works. When you see it again, you can never really start to untrain right. it. You see behind the curtain and you, you're now- Yeah, ACOG says this and there's research that comes out. It's kind of like slightly off topic, but I remember a, several years ago, ACOG had a meeting in, in, I think it was Bethesda, and they had a debate between two guys talking about whether induction at 39 weeks was a good idea or not. And usually a debate should be between one person on one side, one person on the other side. So it's the way before the ARRIVE trial, I presume. This was like two years before. The, well, this is where I'm getting to, right? Oh, okay. It's a couple of years before the ARRIVE trial. So it turns out that both guys agree that induction at 39 weeks is a good idea. So that really wasn't a debate at all. It was two guys supposedly going to have a debate, and they didn't have a debate. And then there's another pa paper beginning to come out and prior to that, there have been papers that came out that said induction at 39 weeks leads to higher C-section rates and blah, blah, blah. 
Then there were a few papers that started to come out that said that doesn't lead to higher C-section rates. Mm. And then the ARRIVE trial comes out. It's almost as if this thing that started at ACOG a few years before was sort of like laying down the red carpet to roll out what they really wanted to do all along. Again, I don't even know what the motive is for that 39-week sure. induction thing. That's old. But it's just, it's, I'm not talking about that specific. I'm talking about the process. Yeah, yeah. And you see the same thing going on here with what we were just talking about. You, yeah. they, they come out with some information about we think it's, we, it's safe. And then mm. suddenly there's data coming out that says it's safe. Mm. Isn't, that in, isn't that interesting? Why don't they wait for the data before ACOG makes a statement that it's safe? Why did they yeah. do that? And then why do we have blind trust? I mean, again, this, you'll see this interview when you listen to it. The, the doctor on the interview with, uh, with Rebecca Decker is blind trust in ACOG right. and the CDC. That they're reliable, they're her reliable sources. Yet ACOG says breach delivery is a good choice. Right. Mm -hmm. But that but they don't accept that part of what ACOG says. So again, right. it it they're 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 not being they're being dishonest. I don't even know that they know they're being dishonest, some of these people. Right. right. But but to vilify people or to call people anti-vaxxers, there's another term. Oh, I can't stand that. Yeah. Right. Right. So because you're you because you're you're skeptical about this particular vaccine does not make you an anti-vaxxer, but it's a pejorative term to dismiss you. It's right. classic what they do. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, they, when they don't have evidence, they pound the table. And when you pound the table, you call people names. You don't have to debate them. Why would I debate somebody who's an anti-vaxxer? Right. right. Yeah. So I'm preparing for my oral boards right now, and I've gone back and forth as to whether or not to actually go through with the board, full board certification. For those of you who don't know, you take a written test after OBGYN residency, pass that one, no problem. Then you collect cases, and at some point you sit in front of a panel of people who just pepper you with questions, and then they make a subjective conclusion as to whether or not you, you know you're you're in the cool kids club. And um, by being a uh, you're a fellow of ACOG still, right? Or did you? Get no, it? no. Um, because I I refuse to uh, re up my boards because they have no relevance to me. Yeah. <laughs> anymore, the American Board of Medical Specialties has made a fortune off of dictating um, boards for each different specialty. And the American Board of OBGYN is no different. There's never been any evidence to show that a board-certified physician is any better than a non-board certified yeah. physician. Yet board-certified physicians have to pay over $1,000 a year, I think, for yeah. maintenance of certification. Right. It used to be you were board-certified for life. And then it was every 10 years. And then it was every six years. And then they decided with no evidence whatsoever to make you have to take maintenance of certification every year. Meanwhile, guys that the same guys in academia that are deciding on the ARRIVE trial were the guys making money off of the board certification mm -hmm. process. So if you're not board certified as of last year, you can no longer be a fellow of ACOG. So I'm now an associate of ACOG. Ah, All I right. See. So I still, I'm still can, I still have access to their site. I still pay dues. Um, they're cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. Well, <laughs> but, I mean, that's a big part of the conversation, though. You know, I'm paying all this money. I've already gone a half a million dollars in debt for my medical training. Now I'm going to pay you a thousand dollars every year to tell me what you think is the best way to practice. And then you're going to go and shoot yourself in the foot by saying, hey, it's safe in pregnancy. It's safe and safe and it's effective and all these other things before we ever even had data. Like yep. it was a joke. It was like March of 2020 or May, no, it was May of 2020. I think that they made that statement. It was like, are you guys kidding me? Like we don't have any data on this. And um, yeah, you know, Nathan, I would, I would say that that years past becoming board certified and becoming a fellow of American college was a rite of passage. I would say for people like you and me, it serves no useful purpose. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
And if you do get board certified, you're going to have to, to maintain it, you're going to have to take these, these um, tests like every year. Articles and stuff, yeah. And yeah. there are going to be articles that have no, you have no interest in. Like, yeah. I have a very narrow scope of practice right now. I don't really care about new techniques in laparoscopic uh, da Vinci surgery, blah, blah, mm. blah. And I don't care about level two uh, resection, you know, um, secondary chemotherapy for estrogen receptor negative exactly. breast cancer. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't really care. So I want to read articles on ultrasound and I want to read articles on pregnancy and breach and uh, the things that matter to me. And so I do my CMEs and I certainly keep up on my CMEs and I don't do it because the state of California or any state mandates you do that. I do it because it's, it's what you do. It's good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. Plus I teach. So um, that helps as well to keep me up to date because I'm challenged all the time when I'm teaching by very inquisitive, usually midwives, because doctors don't want to take my breach courses. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, that, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, Rixa and David are trying to make in, inroads into that. We'll see yeah. if we can get into the residency programs and start teaching that. But the point being is that um, for you, I'm not telling you what to do because you may want to have this achievement, become a fellow of the American College of OBGYN, but then you'll find that you may not be able to deal with it. It's like, it's like a conservative having to try to get through college these days by not writing a conservative essay, right? Because you write a conservative essay, you're going to get an F, right? So right. you play, do you play the game or do you be true to yourself? It's really hard to know what to do. Jeez, I never thought about that. Yeah. That's a really, uh, that's interesting. I mean, you may not pass your boards cause they might ask you a question and you'll go off into a Nathan thing. And then, well, I have to be careful with that. Yeah. And also I was thinking like any of these people just have to search my name on Google and pal, they're going to see who I am <laughs> and what I'm practicing, which, and I'm way more out of the woo closet than you as well. Like I do a lot yeah, of you therapy are. and a lot of spirituality. I mean, that's a big part of my practice. Well, even, your, even your title, you're the holistic OBGYN guy. Yeah, so yeah. the loving, yeah. the loving holistic or whatever you are. Yeah, <laughs> so. I, I, I leave the forceps deliveries to you. I never even picked up forceps. Oh, no, I did in once in residency and it resulted in a skull fracture. The attending there was also the guy who taught us how to do breach, but this was a baby that he was like, let's just use some forceps. And it was the most horrific. It was a fourth degree laceration. The baby had a skull fracture. It was just like the worst possible example of, of forceps. And I know that you're super experienced. D disc, yeah. I was going to say disclaimer. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Forceps yeah. are not, forceps are designed to protect the baby's head when they're used incorrectly, then they can cause Severe exactly. problems, but exactly. when they're used correctly, they can save lives. So, yeah. I, but the I, problem is that they're a dying art as well. They, right? I, I'll tell you just a, a brief anecdote. I carry forceps with me in my in my home suitcase where I go to home births. I don't, I haven't used them in a while. I carry Keelans, I carry Simpsons, I carry Tucker McLeans, and I carry Pipers. Right? Ask me how I got them. Did you find it at some weird art museum somewhere? No, they were, they, they were all, when I used to, I was still at the hospital in, um, in Camarillo and they were all on a cart one day and I asked the chargers, what, what's happening with these? And she says, well, Dr. Belzer says to put them in a museum. And I said, well, can I have some of them? She says, sure. Wow. So the, the, the chairman of the department at the time said, get the forceps off of the floor. So they were getting, because I used them periodically yeah, yeah. back then. They were, they, but they didn't, so they didn't care. And they just were going to take them and get rid of them as a, as a, as a tool to have on the labor floor just right. in case. Right. 
I just want to let you know I'm down to about 10% power here. So Okay, well, we can we can totally wrap up. We've been going forever. I don't want to wrap up, but I've just... I know, you know I, I want to keep rolling just, here. If I just disappear, you'll have to figure it out. <laughs> we'll have to do a part two at some point, because there's a whole bunch of other stuff I want to get into. Um, but, you know, since since you are running out of power, let me just ask you this. I know that it's in providing the quality of care that you provide to your patients, you have been... Uh, you've had to make a lot of compromises in your own life. I mean, you have to be on call almost all the time. If I was still in California, we'd, we'd be partnering up, I'm sure. And, um, and I know Damn that you. I know the opportunity was there back <laughs> in the day. And I, uh, in some ways I'm sort of whipping myself, but I also got to learn the, the ins and outs of, of, of hospice care, which I'm very, very, well, don't, about. don't whip yourself too much. Cause I, I'm going to be visiting you in Kentucky in the spring. Right. So I'll let you whip me. I'll just, <laughs> no, I'm saying I might be moving. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much longer I can stay in California. Wow. Oh, well, different I, topic. Go, go back to, go back to what you were saying. No, this is actually the topic. I was curious. I mean, you are probably burning out. I don't want to label you in any way, but even I was burning out and I wasn't driving three hours to get to birth. So what is next for you? I know that you have quite a following. You've got a bit of, bit of a sort of, uh, viral, uh, for lack of, <laughs> forgive the the use of viral uh viral <laughs> podcast pretty funny yeah. everybody knows you they're getting to know me a little bit and i'm I, i've been grateful to have you as a mentor and the fact that you might be moving out here is even better but i want to know from you like where does like you, you you're trained and you're experienced in doing something very specific to provide comprehensive patient-centered care to women who want to have a respectful home birth where are you going now, given that there's all these limitations to practice, not just in California, but in a lot of places? Well, that's a good question. And, I, and, I, and I've seriously contemplated it. I've been doing birth now for 40 years. And I'm going to take a break starting in April. Right on. Uh, sabbatical. I have a, 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 there's a young physician here. She's good and she's eager and she's got the right mental stuff. Yeah. Uh, her name is Dr. Victoria Flores. You should meet her if you're ever out here again. I got to yeah, introduce yeah, you yeah, to yeah. her. She's yeah. going to cover me while I'm gone. She's doing home birthing now too. So there is another physician out here. There's also one other one that might be just about fed up with her stint in, in a hospital. So we've been talking, but she's a little nervous about what to do with, with babies when they come out. <laughs> so yeah. we, because as an obstetrician, we don't, sure. We're not responsible for that in the hospital, and yeah. as a home birth physician, we are. But that's not too hard. You just take NRP and you and you trust the midwives that are with you yeah. to know what to do because they they're experts at that. I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to I'm going to travel if I'm still allowed to travel. That'll we'll wait and see what happens. I don't really can't really plan because who knows what's going to happen four months from now. Um, but I'm going to do some talks. I've already got a talk set up in Kentucky in September. I've got to talk with Marin. I've got to talk in Florida. I've got to talk in uh, Montana, set up for the summer. So I'm going to do those. I'm going to probably get some more of those lined up in the, in the next couple of months. I'm going to just check out places to live and see. Um, I don't think that I'm going to get away from birth completely because um, I love it too much. Yeah. I, really, I, really do, I really do like what I'm doing. I just need a break from doing it. I've been on call, as I said, every night pretty much for the last 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. So um, even though you're not called that often, you're always on call. Yeah, right. And I need a break uh, to set my mind straight, to figure out what the next thing is, to see where the world is going. Uh, 
I want to teach breach. People said, well, would you ever go back to a hospital and teach breach? And I said, no, I could never work in a hospital again. I, I can't, unless they gave me carte blanche to run the whole program. <laughs> um, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't take seminars on hand washing and seminars on, yeah. on sexual harassment or, uh, or diversity, equity, and inclusion and all that stuff. Um, I, 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 that's not for me. It's just not, yeah, you've got a snowball's chance in hell of, uh, of being happy in the hospital systems too. Plus I'm not board certified. So yeah. therefore I couldn't get privileges. You know, they have all the, the boards. Look, that's another, that's another, uh, uh, a nest of uh, hornets when you right. talk about you know, the boards lobby the insurance companies and the hospitals to say don't let anybody on your plans or in your staff unless they're board certified and and there's probably kickbacks going on for all I know I don't really know what it is but right. but so all these hospitals they do that it's kind of like the joint commission got you know all this authority they're they're non governmental agency and they got all this authority and hospitals are fear they fear them like like the devil. Mm. Um, of coming in and inspecting. So they do all these things to change the way they do things while the, while the inspection's coming. And then as soon as the inspection's over, they put everything back to where it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I do. So, yeah. so I'm going to take some time to figure it out. I really want uh, to take several months where I'm not on call and do some backpacking and some camping and some seeing, seeing the countries, going to some states where I can go into a restaurant or a movie without presenting my papers and uh, seeing what what happens, then I will figure out something new. And whether it will be practicing in another state, whether it will be practicing in another country, like theoretically going to yeah. Bali, going to Bali, working with Robin Lim, or going to Costa Rica, or great. going someplace where I can practice my trade without all the, as you said, all the hoops to jump through and all the regulations, and just do medicine the way it was meant to be done. Um, and the way that you and I believe it should be done with informed consent and allowing people to have these choices and not being fearful that at every moment we're going to either lose our job or lose our license or, or uh, get sued, um, these sorts of things. You don't have that in other places around the world. They're just happy, I think, to have you. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And yeah, I just don't ever want to, I don't think I ever want to be like a primary solo practitioner again. If I can find other people to work with where I can be a mentor and I can come to a birth toward the end. I mean, it's almost like a, a attending at a hospital practice. Now I, you know, I come when the, with the midwives come. So I come yeah. early in labor and I, I may spend 10 hours or 12 hours at a house in labor or even longer sometimes, sometimes shorter, obviously, yeah. but um, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm my, I have a, my back hurts a little bit. My knee hurts a little bit. I don't want to be laying on people's couches all the time for yeah. hours on end. Come, when I'm needed and be able to leave maybe an hour after birth, the placenta's out, everything's stable. I don't have to stay for the three or four hours afterwards, you know, where I sit and really do nothing because postpartum care is, I'm not an expert in that. I'm becoming an expert, but, but midwives are experts in that sort yeah. of thing. And you and I, you know, we, we learn to write the orders and say goodbye and then we're out the door. Yeah. And, that's right. and we'll see, you know, we see them the next day and then we say, we'll see you in six weeks. And that's sort of it. That's, that's that. not the midwifery model of care. That's not your model of care. Right. So right. I have to find I have to find it. I don't know where it is, Nathan. I don't know whether it'll be designed by something something that'll be created out of nothing, or whether I'll I'll meet somebody someplace that will just uh, it will click. Just like that day that I caught my first baby, uh, Christopher Smith. Debbie Smith was a mother. She was a teen mother. It was the first delivery I ever did. I cut a medial lateral episiotomy. Mm. 
right? Because everyone at St. Joseph's Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, got a medial lateral episiotomy in 1983. That was just the way it was done. It's how you do it. Everybody. No, not 1983. That would have been 81. Excuse me, 1981. Wow. It was before my residency. This is when I was a still a student. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's the way it was. But it was still, it was remarkable. And I had no idea that OB was my future until that rotation. Yeah. And well, I don't know what my future is going to hold. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly um, love that you're coming out closer to us because we're going to hang out quite a bit. And um, my big vision is in five to six years, opening up a retreat center where people can come and birth on the land, you know, adjacent to biodynamic farming, regenerative agriculture, kind of do the whole intentional community thing, but build it around a reimagination as to what could birth look like. And it really is a, it's really a, a um, in the spirit of, of, reinstating mid the midwifery care model as the predominant model of how to have a baby, uh, of how to attend to birth. And it's going to be on this beautiful 200 acres. It's about a $20 million project. I'm already starting to get some filmmakers in the process to put it together. And when Is it going to be in, in Kentucky? I don't know. It's fertile land here. That's the only real benefit. Nobody dreams of moving to Kentucky as far as I'm aware. We were recruited out here because the hospital was paying for, you know, a sign-on bonus and they're going to put us up at the Omni and help us find a realtor like they made it really sweet and it was closer to home in pittsburgh um but you know my wife and i have never said hey we're situated in this one space we've been moving together as a as a family our whole lives so it may end up in texas it might end up somewhere in montana i mean it could be anywhere um but right now not, yeah not in california i mean unfortunately you know like big sur like central coast would be like idyllic Right near Esalen, you know, but we can't do it anymore. We just can't. Yeah, you know, up in um, Mariposa, up in uh, up in the foothills of the Sierras, which are beautiful. It's beautiful yeah. up near Yos up near Yosemite. Yeah, it's gorgeous right. up there. But you're still right. California. Mm-hmm. And have to play you still have high food. taxes, high fuel prices. Right, right. Um, really high cost of living. I mean, when I I was in Texas um, in when was I in Texas? August, I guess it was August, and they were pissed off that they were paying three bucks a gallon for gas. Versus and I'm living in California. <laughs> you know, it's over five. I pay over five bucks a gallon for gas here. Wow. And we don't bat an eyelash on it. And we drive more here, too. Right. And you sit in traffic burning that gas every single day on an eight-lane Every, every single day. And as you said, I drive, uh, you know, I could drive a couple hundred miles to a birth. I don't do it all the time. Sure. sure. But if I do a birth in, in Temecula, that means I got to do a home visit in Temecula at 36 or 37 weeks. That right. means I got to go to their birth and I got to do one or two postpartum visits. That's eight back and four back and forth trips or eight trips back and forth from Temecula. Um, yeah. And that's how we do it. But that's what we do because, again... We sort of love what we do, and I, I get paid well enough to, to do it. I'm not complaining about that. I certainly have a lot more freedom to do what I want to do than the days when I was running in a, a busy office in Century City where we were taking insurance and, and being told what we're worth. Right now, I mean, I'm, I can decide what I'm worth, and if I want to give somebody a, a, a free consult or a free birth, I can do that, and if I want to charge somebody extra, I can do that, and they can decide to pay me. It's, it's a great place to be. I, I don't know, why, again, more... Of our colleagues, you started out saying something like, or the men are looking more of the changes and women are sort of more uh, conforming. And yeah. I just don't know, I, I haven't noticed that because I'm not involved in the medical world 